Second Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart. Hmm. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went in front of the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst against Uzzah so that that, so that, that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Perez Uzzah means to break out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now the story goes on and talks about, you know, him leaping and dancing and wearing a linen ephod and Michael, the daughter of Saul, who was one of his wives by this point, uh, despised him in her heart and she ended up being barren all the days of her life. Uh, it, and it looks like as a direct response from the Lord, at least that's the best I can understand of it, uh, to, to that. But that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. We're not going to talk about that incredible scene. There's really at least two different sermons in this. Uh, the second sermon would be a sermon titled, I Will Become Even More Undignified Than This, which I've wanted to preach in here for 12 years and I never have, uh, which is weird, right? Like, why not just do it? But never got around to it. And that one's about worship. That one's about like unshackled, hum self-humiliating, Jesus-centered, grace-saturated, celebratory worship to where, yeah, you just lay it out and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks because it ain't for them, it's for him. And it's about giving him what he's worthy of. And it's hard, to, you, you can't, you can't give the Lord what he's worthy of. 
So you could dance with all your heart. You could sing with all your might. You could go absolutely nuts. You wouldn't be giving him enough glory. Uh, and people would look at you funny if you did that. And that's okay, because it ain't about them. And David did that. And it pleased the Lord, big time. So there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff I, say, I could say about that. But this is the, the Uzzah incident. So Stan, what would you say was God's throne in the Old Testament? The Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was a little box, and not, not real little, like kind of big. And what was in the ark? Do you remember, Rusty? Three things. Seven candlesticks. The stone tablets with the law on them. Yeah, for Moses. A little bit of manna in a jar. <laughs> How cool is that? Manna in a jar. Manna in a jar and Aaron's rod. Oh, Aaron's rod. That was just a dead stick. But in order to prove that God had picked Aaron's sons, Aaron and his family to be the priests, Overnight, they all put their sticks down, and in the morning, his had budded green new buds. And so Aaron's rod, correct me if I'm wrong, this is from memory, Aaron's rod, the Ten Commandments, and a little bit of manna were in this box, and on top of the box, anybody remember what there was? They had something carved. Let's pretend that I can do art. I can't, but we'll just. Well, it had rings on it. Right. These are rings. They go all the way through. And then they're supposed to carry it with poles right. on their shoulders. Hey, look, it's me. I'm walking. <laughs> See, that's good art. And then someone over here. And, but on top of the ark were cherubim form of angels, and their wings came out this way and met in the middle. And it says that the glory of the Lord would appear there, which is why what I meant, what I said on Sunday when I was reading the Easter, two Sundays ago when I was reading the Easter passage, and it said that the place where Jesus had lain in the tomb, that there were two angels at the end of where he had lain, and one on each side, and I was like, dude, are you seeing this? This is Ark of the Covenant stuff. Okay, so this, this special box, if the tabernacle was like God's palace on earth, then this box called the Ark was his throne. Okay? Now imagine you snuck into just a regular human king's uh, throne room when no one was around and you went in and you sat on his throne, would you feel naughty? It's just a human king behind you. Would you feel a little weird about it? Would you feel weird if you also said, oh my goodness, there's his crown. I'm gonna put that on too. What if you grabbed his scepter and you put that in your hand and you sat there? What if you found his robe? You put that on too. And then what if they came in and you got caught? Would you feel instant embarrassment and shame? Rusty's like, nah. 
I don't know what you're thinking. I'm just guessing. There's, even, if that ain't your, even if that's not your nation, you know that's wrong. But now let's say that is your land. That is your, your king. And you love your king. You know better. You ain't doing it. And I'm just trying to set it up to help us comprehend a little bit of the idea of now God is not, a, not, not an ordinary human king. He is way beyond. And let me just fill out a little bit more. Here's a big word, sacramental, right? Scripture is sacramental. Now, we in the modern world, we're not very sacramental. There's one thing we still do, though, that's a little bit sacramental. Well, there's a few things we do, but we don't think of it this way. Uh, do you have a wedding ring? Yeah, I used to wear one, but it hurt my finger. <laughs> so, so, so I don't wear one, and I've never been flirted with by a woman that I can think of that isn't my wife. So it's not like I need to communicate publicly. People tend to notice that I've got a woman and she's got like six it kids. Don't really matter if I wear it or not. But how would you feel if somebody took your ring off your hand and threw it in a sewer? I'm picking on the wrong man. He's unoffendable. Don't yeah, he's an unoffendable man. I mean, it would be, I mean, if you're, if. I let's mean, say, it, let's it, say you and Linda were in a fight. Right. And you took that ring off and you threw it across the room and walked out. What would she think was happening? Would that be a big deal or a small deal? That, that, would, that would be the feeling, wouldn't it? It would, be, you would, it would be, she would probably feel like, is he threatening me with divorce, taking that ring off and throwing it like that? Because the ring isn't just jewelry. Right. It's a symbol of your covenant. Right. This is a symbol of God's covenant with his people. And I saw, uh, oh man, let me see if I can draw. The Bible takes these symbols really seriously. Um, and sometimes symbols are so important in the Bible that they become, that how you treat the symbol is how God takes it as you treating him. Does that make sense so far? So you're like saying if you took the Bible and threw it, kind of, is that the same? That's his word, that's his book, right? It would matter what's in your heart. Like if you were tossing it to your friend to read. No, I meant just that you were mad and you took and just threw the Bible down. Oh. Symbols matter right. in the Bible a lot. Uh, when Lutherans have the Lord's Supper, they say that in the supper, the real presence of Jesus is in the juice and in the bread. The real presence of Jesus. Catholics believe that when the priest says the words of institution... And the words of institution, by the way, is these words. This is my body. This is my blood. That when the priest says those words, quoting scripture, that the Holy Spirit literally comes and makes that simple bread transform into the body of Christ. And Catholics, that's what Catholics believe. Mennonites don't believe that, by the way. And, and they believe that when, 
he says, this is my blood, that the Holy Spirit comes and makes that juice or wine, they use wine, boom, the actual blood of Christ. And they go, well, what if you look at it under a microscope? Is it gonna really be? No, 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 it's a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. Um, my point is not to say they're wrong. My point is to say Lutherans and Catholics take the supper really seriously. Mennonites have historically said it's just symbolic. They would say, oh, come on, man, it's just a symbol to help us remember the truth that Jesus died for us. So that when we eat the, the, the bread and the juice, we remember that our spirits feast on Christ, just like our bodies are feasting on the bread. Uh, so it's just a symbol to help us remember. And I would say, and I've always had a problem with our teaching on that. I feel like our teaching on that is weak. And I feel like the Lutheran teaching is a lot better. I really do. Because what do you mean it's just a symbol? Uh, is it just a symbol to flip your grandma off? No, it means something. It means something serious. And how you treat the sign of covenant, in this case, the ark, God takes it real seriously. And if you think I'm wrong, check out 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says a whole bunch of people, Christians, in the city of Corinth, a whole bunch, this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, a whole bunch of people in the city of Corinth are getting sick. And some have even died. And they don't know why. Well, Paul tells them why. He says it's because of the way you're taking the Lord's Supper. Some of y'all are getting drunk. Some of y'all are coming, overeating, getting fat. And there's people in your group that are so poor they come in hungry and you're not even sharing with them. So you're greedy, you're drunk, and you're unloving to each other. And God's mad. That you, are, that you are presuming to treat each other and the symbols of his presence and blood so disrespectfully that God's mad enough he's allowing some of you to get sick and some of you even die. Now, it doesn't say that he sent anyone to hell. That's an interesting thing. He didn't say you're going to hell for this, you Corinthians. He said, you're, you're, you're experiencing a spanking. Now, I'm, I'm drawing this out to say, sometimes we're reading these Old Testament stories. Uzzah reaches out his hand and touches the ark, and we go, oh, aren't you so glad we live in the new covenant where that never happens? And I go, hold up, slow down, have another think. Am I right? You hear, do you hear what I'm saying? Slow down. Now, did those Corinthian Christians know what was happening? They didn't have a clue. So, would it, so, so what, what, if, what if when you tried to tell them what was happening, they said to you, oh, that's old covenant thinking. I don't want to hear about no angry God. And you said, wait a minute. God's not an angry God. He's a loving God. I'm trying to give you the knowledge you need to successfully navigate life. That'd be a little bit like somebody's burning their hands when they're cooking because they don't know there's such a thing as oven mitts. And they're mad at you for telling them use a mitt. Do you hear what I'm saying? Go ahead, Stan. Now, is that the idea of, because uh, some, some, some Christians say, oh, well, you know, you got this, you got that, so, so you know, you're kind of in, you know, 
in sin. Is that kind of where that idea comes from? Say it again. Like, like say, like just like. Oh, are you saying that, that, oh, somebody's sick, it always must be because they sinned. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying here. There's lots of godly people who go through things. Paul had an issue with his eyes. I agree. It doesn't mean he was sinning. But, but some people take that scripture, I think, ah. twist it to, okay, you know, that, because, mm-hmm. because, you know. Yeah. Job had painful boils all over his body. He was an absolutely righteous man who feared the Lord, pleased the Lord, honored the Lord, gave to the poor. Was an, he was faultless in all his ways. Yeah. And he suffered greatly, and it wasn't his fault. And he never got an answer as to why. But his response to God in the midst of it proved he was righteous. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Of course, he also came through it. But yeah. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So I'm not saying, oh my goodness, if there's anything bad and hard in your life, it must be because you're doing something wrong. What I'm trying to say is, yeah, I'm just saying, I'm what saying, God did in the Old Testament is not a different God yeah. than the Father. People take that scripture yeah. and they... That's where they get that. Ah, okay, so, so yeah, that's, that's a great clarification, Stan. I'm not saying everyone who ever got sick, it's because oh, they sinned. Yeah. That's not at all what I'm saying. Oh, I know that. I'm saying in the city of Corinth, hmm. there were some people getting sick and dying because they were treating each other. Yeah. See, you're the body of Christ. Right. And those symbols matter. The symbols matter, but you matter. Yep. And they were mistreating both the symbols and each other as the body. They were not recognizing the real Christ among them, both in the symbol and each other. And as a consequence, you know, you could say it this way. The Lord withdrew his protective blessing. Did he actively reach out and kill? I don't know. But what I do know is that is important for us today. Right? Okay, so. Uzzah reached out his hand and took hold of the ark to steady it when the oxen stumbled, and God was angered and immediately killed him. This happened as David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem with enthusiastic celebration, and and you heard me say, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And you go, well, why? Well, it's very clear, because he reached his hand out to touch the ark. In fact, it actually says he did touch it. He laid hold of it. So here's the question. What did God want him to do? Let it fall on the ground? Would it have been a total disaster if it had fallen on the ground? Man, I think I'd have freaked out personally. But what's a bigger deal? That ark touching the soil, the dirt. What's, what's, what's a bigger deal to God? The ark falling on the ground and touching the dirt or Uzzah's hand touching it? The earth He's made of dirt, right? But the earth is not as un... He's made of But the earth isn't a sinner. The earth actually is full of the glory of the Lord. We don't know his heart, though. God did. I'm going to throw this out there. Numbers 4.15 says, you must not touch the holy things lest you die. Numbers 4.15. First Chronicles 15.15 says, you are supposed to carry the ark on poles, on your shoulders with poles. Why? Because no man was supposed to touch 
you are not to touch it. That's a good question. Did those in Corinth know? I'm going to argue this. If it had fallen on the ground, it would not have defiled the ark at all. Because unlike human hands, the soil is not, the soil's not sinful. He who has clean hands and a pure heart can approach the Lord. There's something about hands and lips that are such a big deal to the Lord that if your hands and, and lips, meaning what you do and what you say, you speak the truth and you honor God and you love people and you serve God with integrity. But even if you do that, clean hands and a pure heart, you weren't to touch the ark. It wasn't about whether he was a righteous or a sinner. As a human, he was not to touch this ark. I don't know if he knew these passages. I don't know what Uzzah knew. But apparently the ground was more clean than Uzzah's hands. In a similar story earlier involving Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, the first day they are authorized as priests, the first day, it says that they offered to the Lord un... Um, well, I'll just... unauthorized fire. They, they improvised. God clearly laid out, here's how you guys approach me. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. Here's exactly where to stand. Here's what to wear. Here's what to say. And they said, I will wing it. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Instant, they died instantly. Um, that's in Leviticus 10, if you want to look that up. And I'll, okay, so apparently it really, really matters to the Lord that those who handle holy things, treat those holy things as holy. It really seems to matter to the Lord. And apparently the details matter. Leviticus 10.3, Moses said to Aaron when his kids had just died, two of his sons just died, and this is what Moses said to him. Moses said, this is what the Lord said, among those who are near to me, I will be regarded as holy. And in front of all the people, I will be glorified. And, and, and it says, and Aaron held his peace. Ooh. He just, do you, you think Aaron had some things he wanted to say? He shut his, he shut his mouth. Because if I say what I'm feeling, I'm going to say some things that aren't going to be good. I'm just going to shut up right now. That's what he said. Mm-mm. That's how Moses made sense of that. Aaron's kids die, and he says, God will be regarded. He will be represented and treated as holy in the eyes of all the people. Now, there's a lot of sinners doing terrible things all over the world. God doesn't strike them down. What's up with that? So why Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons? Why Uzzah? Let me ask you, why those people at Corinth? Let me throw this out there. Why Ananias and Sapphira? You know that story? Acts chapter 5. A rich couple sold some property. And instead of being truthful, they took some of the money, kept it for themselves. They took the rest of the money and came and presented it at the apostles' feet and claimed 
This was the whole thing. Why? Because it would look good to everyone else if they sold that expensive property and they gave the whole thing to the Lord. So they lied to the whole church, but that's not what Peter says. Peter says, how is, how is it that Satan has, that you have allowed Satan to so fill your heart with evil that you would lie to the Holy Spirit? And boom, they're killed. And how did the church respond? Anybody remember? It's Acts chapter five. It says fear gripped the people. You'd be watching your P's and Q's, but here's my question. Does that mean all liars get struck down? Well, clearly not, right? So something was special going on with the ark. Something is special going on with the priests coming into the holy place. Something was special going on in the book of Acts, in the church, with the spirit being poured out and right at the epicenter of that. Something was really special going on in those places where holy things were being mistreated as unholy. God took it very seriously and very personally. And he demands to be treated as holy, to be shown as holy. Notice how it says those. I think one meditation on the Nadab and Abihu thing is where Paul says that those of us who are teachers will be judged more strictly. Why? Because we are representing him to the people. And you know how it talks about people who mistreat God's church will not get off with, they'll not get away with it because God's church is holy and that God takes very seriously how you treat holy things. If you treat Mary Stoll wrong, you're gonna be on God's bad side like that because she belongs to the Lord and she's precious to the Lord and holy. If you mistreat Stan, you're gonna get in trouble with the father real quick. It's true though. It's crazy. And, and interestingly, like, like we talked about last night, he who lends to the poor, I'm sorry, he who's kind and generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he'll repay you. Why? Because the Lord cares about the poor. They're sacred to him. It might not matter to society, but they're really important to God. And if you take care of them, God says, I'm gonna take care of you because you took care of my, what's important to me. Okay. Uh, I think it's interesting when the Philistines, there's a story in 1 Samuel where the Philistines captured the ark in the middle of, of the battle. The Israelites think to themselves, if we just take this ark with us into the battle, nobody will be able to beat us. And they're wrong. God says, that's not how it works. I'm not on your team. I'm on my team and you're not on mine. You've been, you, you haven't been walking in my ways. I'm gonna bless you if you honor me. You can't just use my furniture to try to manipulate me to get your will done. That's not how this goes. So the ark is captured. And what we find is they take the ark, the Philistines take the ark, and they go, our God, Dagon, is bigger than their God, Yahweh. We won. They view it as a battle of the gods. They all, ancient people always viewed it this way, that if we win, then it must be that our God beat your God. If you win, it must be that your God beat our God. And they also viewed God as region, regional. Like, whoa. The God of the mountains, the God of this river. So if you go to India, they still think that way oftentimes out in the countryside. That's why they have a million gods because everything's a local God. That tree has a God in it and this ocean has a God in it and all that stuff, okay? So they take the ark 
And to, to demonstrate their God's superiority, they take it into the temple of Dagon, their God. And in the morning, they're horrified because Dagon has <laughs> fallen down on his face in front of the ark. He's bowing down. What happened? I think a little angel said, <laughs> and they go, oh, this is embarrassing. So they quick pick him back up again, hope no one noticed. Shh. Happens again, except this time his hands are broken off. As a, like, almost like a symbol of he has no power, you know? And uh, <laughs> finally they're like, you know what? This is starting to not be fun anymore because a plague breaks out and, and all kinds of rats start coming against the Philistines and the rats are spreading plagues that give them painful boils on their body. And they go, life's starting to not be fun. When did this really start? What's, the, what's going on here? And they go, you know what? When this really started, it started when we brought that ark into our territory. Let's get rid of that and see if this helps. That's what they do. They say, they don't know for sure if that's what's going on, but if we get rid of it and the plague goes away, then we'll know that, that the Lord did it. But if we get rid of it and the plague stays, then we'll know that it just happened by chance, that it coincided. So they, they set the ark on a, on, on a cart, a, 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 pulled by oxen, just like, just like David did. How come we don't read about anybody instantly being struck down in the whole time that the ark is with the Philistines? That's interesting to me. Do you think they touched that ark with their hands? Do you think they were being careful and reverent in their hearts and their attitudes? They're Philistines. They don't care about this God. It's almost like God didn't have the same standards for them as he did for his people. Okay. How are we doing? Everyone okay? Have I raised a hundred questions in your mind yet? Yes. Excellent. That's good. Now I'm bored. Well, you know, you know dude, it's okay. That's okay with me if you're bored. <laughs> I wasn't doing this teaching thinking entirely like Matthew's gonna be here. All right, David has three responses. What were they? So he's, I mean, full-on celebration. Full-on. Full-on celebration all of a sudden, in the middle of the celebration. They're singing. They're dancing. The amps are turned up to 10. The electric guitars are playing. People are freaking out. It is a good day, and all of a sudden, the oxen stumble. Uzzah reaches out. Boom. He dies. The music stops, and the party's over. And what is, look at the text. What does it say David felt? Three, three things happen. Or should I just tell you? Three things happen with David when this happened. What's the first emotion David feels? Grief. Anger. Anger. Then what's the next thing it says? Grieved. Just read it to me. My, my translation says, David was afraid of the Lord. I'll write it down. Now, 
Is the fear of the Lord the same thing as being afraid of the Lord? It says he was grieved before he was afraid. Eight says David was grieved and mm. offended. And then down here it said David was afraid. That's interesting. You did not say that? What verse is that? Eight, eight, nine. It says David was grieved. Yes. Second Samuel six, eight. He was grieved and offended. And verse eight, verse nine, it says David was afraid of the Lord. Oh, I meant first Samuel. And said, How can the Lord come? Mm -hmm. How can the Lord come? Mm -hmm. Tell me the exact verses again. Eight. Mine says uh, David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst against Uzzah. What are you reading the Quran? New Revised Standard <laughs> Version. What, what, what translation do you have? Um, amplified. Oh, Amplified. That's why. Oh, okay. Yeah, because that's more of a paraphrase. That's not a. That's not a. Yeah. Well, when it says one word in Hebrew, the Amplified is going to translate it as like four words. Oh, okay. So, okay. So it says that David was angry, and yours expands on it and says that he was grieved and offended. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it says he's afraid of God, and then we read another thing, and that is the third thing, which is he is unwilling So those are his three reactions. He's angry. Now here's a question, guys. Who is he angry at? Who's David mad at? Who is it? That's an option. Not necessarily, but why would he be mad at God? Read the text. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is it says uh, he was angry that the Lord broke out against Uzzah. Sounds pretty clear. He's angry at the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Angry that the Lord did this. Uh, that implies that the answer to the question is he's angry at God. And also it says he's afraid of God. So he's angry at God and he's afraid of God. And if you think about it, don't you think that he could be thinking, I know Uzzah, he's a good guy. Well, I mean, what would have happened to Carl, right? He'd, I'd be mad, I'd be furious. Uzzah's actions seem... I think, to David, reasonable. God's actions seem unreasonable. It's like a violation of trust and a destabilization of your worldview. I think it's a total sh shock to, to David that this happened. And if you look before this, David, I was doing a study the other day on the, on the phrase, and David inquired of the Lord. It shows up all over the place. Something's going on and we don't know what to do. It says, and David inquired of the Lord. That was his pattern. When there's trouble, when there's problems, when there's, a, when there's a fork in the road and he don't know which way to go, he seeks God. Not generically, not saying, bless my plans, I'm gonna do this, bless it. That's not what he does. He seeks God and asks God specific questions. Check it out, it's really cool. Hey God, should I go up against them? Yep. If I go up against them, will, they, will I be able to defeat them? Yep. 
hey God, what should we do? Nope, not go there. If, they, if you let them come get you, they're gonna, if they come into this, they're gonna come into the city and take you if you stay, you better get out. Okay, God, thanks. That's David's pattern. Then it says this repeatedly, when he is in trouble and he's inquiring of the Lord, he'll say to Gad, his seer, so he has a personal prophet, that's interesting, and he would say to Gad, hey, bring me the ephod. That's, that's, what's an ephod? It's like a bib that the priests would put on when they ministered to the Lord. What is David doing? Who does he think he is putting on a priestly ephod? That, that's weird, right? Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is busting into the tabernacle and saying to the priest, hey, give me and my men some of this holy bread? And God doesn't seem mad about it. Jesus brings it up later and says it wasn't lawful, but he didn't sin because he's God's kid. So I think David, David was used to bending the rules. I'm just saying, he seems to know he has special favor with God. You know Psalm 110? Psalm 110 says that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Not the order of Levi, Aaron, the order of Melchizedek. Who was, who was Melchizedek, guys? I'm going to give you a little quick, just a little quick thing that I studied out the other day. Some people think it was Jesus. And they're wrong. It wasn't. It was Melchizedek. And Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay? There wasn't a pre-incarnate Jesus. It was a king. Melchizedek was the priest and the king of a city called Salem, which nowadays we call that same city. But he had no beginning, no end. What it means is he didn't show up with a genealogy. It doesn't actually mean he's immortal. That's the author of Hebrews saying that in a similar fashion that Jesus is immortal, we don't have record of Melchizedek's genealogical thing. Oh, okay. But I hear you. Okay, so the Melchizedek was a king and a priest. That's interesting. He was both the king of Salem and the priest of Salem. And when, when he met Abraham, he offered sacrifices to the Lord. And he even... Uh, uh, that's, the tith- that's one of the first tithing passages. I was going to say, didn't Abraham tithed. 10% to... No, Abraham tithed to him. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yes. Abraham gave Melchizedek 10%. Yes. Yeah. And so here's the deal. The city of Salem is Jerusalem, which David, that became the city of David. Here's my theory. David defeated the city of Jerusalem. And I think in his mind, he took on the mantle of Melchizedek. You don't have to agree with me. But Psalm 110, which was written by David, I think is literally David saying that the Lord said to him, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that later, Jesus, as the son of David, fulfilled that. And Jesus is the eternal king and priest. So he's even greater than David was, obviously, by a long shot. But I think David was used to seeking God, being familiar with God, being in the presence of God. I think he felt safe in the presence of God. I think he felt loved and hope and God's peace and God's spirit and all that good stuff. And I think when this happened with Uzzah, it was a complete shock to his system. It was not who he had known God to be. Does that make sense? Now, I can be wrong about some of these things that I'm saying. I'm doing a little speculating here but I'm doing my best speculating after good research. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so 
let me ask you this question. Is any, is any of this relatable? Has something ever happened that was not what you wanted to happen or what you expected to happen? And your first reaction was to be angry at God, yep. afraid of God, and as a result of what had happened, you didn't know if you could trust God to keep him that close or to be that close to him. Is that, am I making sense? Because that was David's reaction. God, I don't understand what you've done. I don't like what you've done. I'm, I don't trust you. And, and I know you're real, but you live over there. And I'm gonna live over here because I don't know what's gonna, I don't, I don't know, I don't trust you to be close enough to you. And if you don't relate to that, do you know some people who you think relate to that? I don't. I was mad at God. I wasn't gonna hurt him, but I was just mad. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I wasn't I mean, gonna I hurt him. God, but I'm just saying I was I was mad because I prayed that my sister-in-law, mm. Jeff's wife, told Jeff that she wasn't gonna die. Mm. And mm. she died. And I was mad. Mm-hmm. He's a big boy, he can take God. But I got over that, but I found out in later years that that wasn't right for me to do and I asked for forgiveness of it because I didn't understand. I think David went through the same thing. Yeah. But I didn't do what David did. I didn't actually see God and understand and know why I was just mad because I had told somebody something that I probably had no business telling. So I was just speaking it into existence and it never happened. So I kind of yeah. that. Story. That whole situation was so heartbreaking. And he's a godly man. Yep. Still is a godly man. So, I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I, I get it. I understand. <clears throat> so then, as a response, a man named Obed-Edom takes the ark back. He'd already had the ark for 20 years. 20 years he's had the ark. Nobody died when he had it. What's up with that? Now, well, is that what they brought it from? They brought it from Obed-Edom's house. They just gave it back to him. Now, he took the ark back knowing full well... God just killed a dude who touched this thing. Why is Obed-Edom not afraid, but in fact probably honored to have it back? Because he had it for 20 years. Now, can you work with that thought just a, mi- just a minute? Other people didn't want it. Didn't feel safe around it. But he did. Would you feel safe working in a nuclear power plant? If you knew how to work around it, would you? Yeah, nope. Would you feel safe working up in high voltage electrical stuff? Do you think my electrician friends who work around high voltage stuff all the time, do you think they experience fear every single day when they go to work? that got me started in business down in Florida. Her husband worked in a nuclear plant. He wore this thing every day that Mm. told him if he got too much. Yep. Exposure to radiation. Well, 60 of his friends and him, Mm. after they retired, died within two years. 60 of his friends, she couldn't do nothing about it because the radiation, he he was feeling sick one day and went to the doctor and 
They mm-hmm. cut him open, shut him back up, said, you're gone. Yeah, you're done. Yeah. And that's why I say what I say. I don't know. In electricity, a guy was EMT when they had that. He was, another guy was up on a pole in a bucket, and it, it arced from there yep. into the ground. He yep. leaned against the truck and killed him. Yep. Now, I'm just saying, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He had everything when he was supposed to, but it's unpredictable. Mm. So I don't know that I feel safer at electric. I know what to do and what to wear, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to fool with it too much. I'm so, scared of it. So I'm, trying to think of, so I'm trying to think of metaphors for something that is extremely powerful and so that if you don't know how to work around it, you're in trouble. But if you do know how to work around it, then there's a way to be safe and you can reap the benefits of its power. That's what I'm trying to work to. Um, My theory is if you know what you're doing and you treat electricity with respect, then you don't need to be afraid and you can reap the benefits of having it. There's people who work their whole career, not just putting electric in homes, but dealing with extreme high voltage on tall, those huge towers. There's people who work their whole career in that and they're safe the whole time. Never been electrocuted, not even been shocked. In fact, a small shock and a normal thing, if the equivalent of that is you're done <laughs> in that big thing. Uh, you know? And there's guys that even sitting there hanging out of a helicopter working on those power lines. Why? Well, because actually that's safer because you ain't grounded. You're not grounded. But that sounds crazy to me. What you talking about hanging out of a helicopter? I've seen him do it. I've seen him do it right over there. Yep. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like electricity. Knowledge is your friend. There's a, there's a, yeah. Knowledge is your friend. Sometimes in the Christian life, we, are, we poo-poo on knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Hosea 4, 6 says, my people perish those people in Corinth, they might not have liked what Paul had to say to them. They might have said, oh, I don't want to believe in that kind of God. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't telling them about a mean God. He was helping them navigate reality better. It's like, what, do you want to believe what you want? Or do you want to have truth that helps you navigate reality successfully? You know? And God is a reality. You're going to end up meeting God one way or another. And reality is like, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't care what you think. It doesn't submit to what you think. You're, you're, gonna, you're gonna walk into the consequences of either, not, either adjusting to reality or reality will adjust you, right? Yep. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to move on. Um, there's more I wrote down here, like Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So some people, they go, well, that's old covenant stuff. And then I go, what about uh, these examples I've just given you? It shouldn't make us afraid of God because I think David's response is incorrect. Obed-Edom's response is correct. Treat God with the proper reverence and respect. Mm-hmm. And what, what do we read? It says God blessed him. He was only, the ark was only there three more months. So in three months' time, literally everyone noticed, oh my word, everything in this man's household is thriving. Not just him, his wife, his kids, his servants, his animals, his fields, everything, he, everything in it, it says everything in his entire, everything he owns was blessed. Everything he touched was blessed because of his 
taking the ark into his place. And so then the report gets to David and David goes, okay. It's almost like he's running an experiment. What if we ran experiments in church? Do you ever notice all the people, modern people trust in is research? If you say, I'm here to give you truth, they go, I'm not interested. But if you say, listen, we've been doing these studies, we've been doing research, they go, tell me more. What if churches were doing research? Let's see what would happen if we would start to obey Jesus in this area. Let's see what happens if we obey Jesus in this area. They got some people over here not obeying Jesus in this area. Let's, let's see if we do this with a heart of faith just to run some research. You think that would speak to people? Guys, we did some research and so we can pray. We, we went out and we started praying for the sick. We, prayed for, we each committed, we're gonna pray for 100 people. We're gonna keep track of the results. Let's do some research. What did we learn? You think people would be interested in that? Would you be interested in that? Well, taking the ark to Obed-Edom's house was research. They watched and they go, oh my goodness. Uzzah got killed, but this guy got blessed. So maybe our response of get it away from me is the wrong response. Maybe the response is we have to adjust ourselves to its reality, to God's reality. I feel like I'm talking too long. All right, all right, all right, got this. Here's some takeaways I have real quick. God is holy. Simple. Second one, God cares about whether we treat him as holy. Simple, right? Third one, God treats those of us who draw near to him. He wants us who draw near to him to take his holiness real seriously. And for me, that means I deal with holy things. His word is super holy. His spirit is holy. Y'all are really holy, really holy. So I'm messing with high voltage stuff. So like Aaron, like Aaron's sons, if I just say, oh, the details of the word don't matter, I'll, I'll, I'll preach the general gist of it. I'll say what I wish it said. I'll make an I'll, I'll find a way to bend it to make the people happier. You think that's serious? Guys, that's a serious deal. I have a friend who recently said to me, Tim, if you keep preaching what the Bible says about sex and sexuality, this next generation, they're going to leave the church. And I said, well, then it sounds to me like I have a choice. No, am I going to please Jesus or am I going to please them? Please that's my only choice. Yep. Period. Because he's a reality I'm going to, I'd be less willing to bump up against being on the wrong side of God than being on the wrong side of people, especially culture, which is changing. Did you know culture changes its morality about every 10 years? If you've tracked your own life, you change your own morality about every 10 years. So if you base it on what you think or what your culture thinks, you have no basis for moral, moral truth. Better just... So we've fudged in here on, in the past on some small details. I think we have. I have. And it always has unintended consequences we didn't know about. When you obey Jesus carefully, it always has unanticipated blessings you didn't know about. When you disobey Jesus, it always has unintended, unanticipated problems you didn't know about. You hearing what I'm saying? When we trivialize God's commands, even the details of his commands, we end up trivializing him. 
even if we don't think we're doing that. We are. Another thing I, I notice in this passage is God is interactive and emotional. David's not the only one who gets angry in the story. God gets angry in the story. That's fascinating. Uh, two more observations. Number one, David's first reaction wasn't right. His first reaction, anger at God, being afraid of God, and being unwilling. Anger, fear, unwilling. That ended up not being the right approach. But my guess is he had the humility to change his mind. Sometimes your first response isn't right. Sometimes my first response isn't right. But do we have the humility to change our mind? Anything you can do with anger, you can do better without. God's the only one I know who can handle anger and not sin. It's not a sin to be angry, but you can't stay angry or you will sin. Am I making any sense? I feel like I'm not saying very clearly. Yeah, let's have the humility when our first reaction is wrong to admit we're wrong and learn and change and adapt. Uh, when things go wrong, instead of saying, I quit, I ain't doing this anymore, I'm not taking the ark up to Jerusalem, I'm not gonna fulfill my calling, I'm not gonna, do, I'm not gonna try anymore with people, I'm not gonna do this, this thing God called me to do. When it, when it breaks down, the temptation is to say, I quit, I'm done, I'm out. I'm tired of being hurt, tired of being disappointed. It didn't work the way I thought it was. I'm disappointed with God, people, myself, the whole thing. I'm done, I quit. But that's not the right approach. The right approach is to say, Okay, what went wrong? And that can be hard and sometimes even painful. What went wrong here? And how can we do it again and this time try a little better? Not just try again, try smarter. You know, they say if, you, if, you, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's stupid. It needs to be if at first you don't succeed, figure out what went wrong and fix it. Then try again. All right, I'm done. Good talk, people. <laughs> crazy. I, know, I don't know about all that. Yeah, you got any questions? Any comments? Let me ask you, are you afraid of God ever? Rusty says no. That's good. Why would you be afraid of a loving God? A lot of people are afraid of a loving God. And then... And then Instead of, and instead of getting, because there's two ways you can resolve that tension. Hey, don't run in here, buddy. Don't run in here. There's two ways you can resolve that tension. Change your view of God so that you don't have to change to adapt to him. That's the modern approach. Pretend God's totally safe no matter how you act. It's a lie. It's not true. Or change your behavior to adapt to him so that he's not dangerous. Because here's the deal. It's not safe to sin grievously against the Lord your whole life and expect that to be just like fine. That's not safe. It's not safe or smart, you know? And some people would say, Tim, don't preach that. That's not what people want to hear. You know what I mean? And I'm like, dude, God's perfect love, but, but you got you to adapt to perfect love and let him save you. Let him change you. You can't just like keep running against the grain of reality. All right. Any other, any other observations?
Is this a freaked out? Is this story freak you out at all? Yeah. It doesn't look like it. Okay, a little bit. I don't know why I like it, and I've always liked it. I don't know if there's something weird about me, but it's like this, maybe the same reason that I like watching people jump off of mountains with wingsuits. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's something, I'm like, ooh, God's actually got a risky, dangerous side? That's exciting. Huh. Because it, it resonates with reality a little bit more. If the God of the Bible, if the Bible didn't describe re, spiritual reality as having any danger and any booby traps, so to speak, it would be very unlike my experience of life. My experience of life is you're going along and then something goes terribly wrong and you don't quite understand what it was until much later oftentimes, or unless you find somebody who has the knowledge and revelation and skill and maturity that you don't to help guide you through it. Now I'm just rambling. Anyways, are we, are we good? Are we done? Good job, guys. That was some deep theology. When I first met the Lord, one of the first books I read was uh, R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. The whole book written about Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah comes into the temple and the glory of God fills the place and the Lord's there and he sees him exalted and his train of his robe fills the temple and the whole place shakes and the cherubim, and they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And he cries, I'm undone. And R.C. Sproul wrote a whole book unpacking how important it is for us to have a vision of God as holy and to not treat God as cheap, small, weak, and safe. You know what I mean? Once you get to know him as a father, you feel utterly safe in his presence, safer in his presence than anywhere else. You know what they always say, the safest place to be is in the will of God. That's true. But that's once you've adjusted yourself to who he is so that you can be around the high voltage and, and, and reap the benefits. Thanks, guys.